We are continuing our series in the Psalms this morning. Um, I'll be reading Psalm 133. As you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. It's a sign of its authority over us. Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning, Christ community. My name is Nate Himes. If I haven't met you yet, I'd love to have the opportunity to do that. Uh, I serve as one of the elders here at at Christ Community as the last couple of months, and it's a privilege to do that. Um, When I was trying to choose and select a psalm for this morning, um, I thought of this one. I wanted to do one of the other psalms of a sense. Talk a little bit about that in a moment. Um, But being the youngest of three boys, this psalm has always meant a certain thing to me. Being the father of four boys, it means something to me as well. But the psalm is actually not about biological sibling brothers dwelling in unity. Um, It is about the family of God dwelling in unity. And so as I reflected on that and prepared to to speak on this this morning from the Word, I thought it would be important to maybe say a couple things up front, um, knowing that a psalm like this, speaking about unity in the church, might land on people's ears a certain way this morning, not only here in, in this room, but in our culture today. You know, back in May, uh, we had, at our last members meeting, uh, some of you were, were there, the elders shared with the church how over the last two years, some of the elders and their wives have experienced some conflict with one another. And eventually, uh, five other people from the church were asked to come in and help direct and facilitate some reconciliation type process um, with an outside mediator. I was one of those. Uh, Tony, who was up here this morning leading us in worship, was one of those people as well. By the time we got involved, though, the, the fruit of the disunity was already present. Everyone was exhausted. Everyone was hurting. People described how difficult it was to come through these doors and in, in worship or to lead you all in worship. And they all truly longed for, uh, in doing what they knew to do in their hurt and exhaustion, to experience unity again. But the life-sucking impact of discord and disunity uh, was present. And it, it didn't just impact them. It impacted the entire fellowship here, whether you felt it or not. Um, some people may have no idea what I'm talking about right now. <laughs> like, what? Uh, so I'm, I'm aware of that. Um, but I share this because it did impact the fellowship in a way. For one, a lot of time and energy, prayer, heartache, even money was spent trying to pursue unity again. And that was a really, really good thing. It was right for us to do that, though we didn't always do it rightly. Um, And while all this was going on, though, this church, you all, continued going about life. Not quite as normal because there's a pandemic in there, but you continued... uh, Taking classes, working your jobs, experiencing highs and life, celebrating those, mourning losses, 
Children were born into families. New people joined our fellowship. My point is that you all, this fellowship of believers, continued needing shepherding care from your elders. And one of the impacts of a lack of unity that existed during that period of time was that they were unable to invest fully in caring for you in the way that you may have needed. I can think of specific examples in the last year when some of you were in great need and you were reaching out for that need and the elders were just not able to respond in a way that they would have liked. And they grieved that at that moment. They've grieved it since then. They repented of that towards you. And the current elders, we are still in a season of reflecting on what took place so we can learn and grow from all that. But I I bring this all up twofold. One, first, to not be ironic or hypocritical or obtuse in preaching a sermon today on unity at this moment in time, Um, but mainly to further illustrate David's point in this psalm that unity, when it is experienced in the fellowship of God's people, is truly good and pleasant. It is a sacred blessing. It is life-giving. And we should treasure it when we have it. And we should grieve when we don't. And ultimately, we should turn to Jesus, who is the source of this blessing and the means of it. I also say, want to say one other thing at the front end of this sermon, and that is that I'm, I'm aware that passages like this in the Bible that speak to pursuing unity and protecting unity are sometimes used manipulatively by leaders in the church or in Christian ministries to abuse those who have been uh, harmed by them or by the church. Say, no, you, you need to keep that down. You need to be quiet about that. Let's not talk about that. Don't say a word. Just be quiet. Because unity. And that is an ugly and wrong thing. In fact, that kind of behavior um, or thought is actually antithetical to unity just as much as the initial abuse or unrepented moral failure was a violation of unity in the fellowship. So unity does not mean or require a lack of conflict. It doesn't require that we don't deal with sin forthrightly. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift. Stop your worship. Go and be reconciled with your brother. Then come and offer your gift. And then later in Matthew 18, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two more others along with you, that every charge may be established by two or more witnesses. And if he still refuses to listen to you, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile as a tax collector, essentially someone who is outside of the fellowship. So in both places, Jesus encourages people to bring things to the surface rather than hide them, all for the sake of regaining and restoring unity in the family of God. So again, I share these things at the front end, knowing that in this time and place for our local church here in Christ's community, for the global church in this place and time and history, a sermon on unity within the body of believers, will bring to mind these kinds of situations. And my prayer is that God will minister to us in that, that he will restore to us a sense of hope and joy in being able to experience unity in the fellowship. Let's pray together to that end. Father, we thank you uh, for this, this beautiful psalm. 
We thank you for the symbols that are in there and what they represent. We ask that you would help us here to experience just this beautiful, life-giving reality of unity that you have made possible for us. Lord, I pray that you would use my words now to, to be a balm to those who are hurting in the room. Pray that it would be an encouragement uh, to each of us as you would see fit through your Holy Spirit uh, to do. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want to give a little bit of context for the, the psalm. As we said earlier, it is one of the psalms of ascent. There's 15 psalms of ascent in the psalms, and they are believed to be used by the people of God as they walked and gathered and journeyed together to Jerusalem for their annual celebrations of worship there. Uh, and so often there's themes of recounting God's faithfulness to his people or themes of celebrating uh, Zion, the city of God. We see that here towards the end. Four of these are written by David, including this one. So uh, we'll see, we're going to look at what David wants us to see. What is he reflecting on here? Let's read verse 1 together. Or I'll read it for you. It should be up, it won't be up on the screen. It was my bad. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. David is wanting to draw our attention to something. He says, behold, look, pay attention to this. Consider it. See how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. When David refers to brothers here, he's not referring to, you know, siblings in a home necessarily. He's referring referring to the brothers of Israel, the 12 brothers, the tribes of Israel, the family of God. Today that family is the church. Anyone who has turned to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and made him and his kingdom the love of their hearts. So David is talking about unity within the family of God. And the first thing he says is that it is good. It is good. It is right. Unity is how things ought to be. It is how things were at the beginning of creation. It is how things will be for eternity when Christ returns. And it is right also in the sense that it is what God requires of his people. During Jesus' three years or so with his disciples, he spent an awful lot of time talking to them about unity. Christ pointed out to them how the religious uh, leaders and the political rulers of the day used their power and authority to serve themselves and oppress others. But he instructed the disciples to do things like washing each other's feet. Jesus' emphasis on unity and love between his followers is also evidence in the way that this theme appears in nearly every book of the New Testament. We see that in, in those who were taught directly by Jesus, they continued to spread this message. In John's first letter, he writes, Beloved, if God, is, has, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In First Peter, he writes, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he writes, But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? 
To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. So this is a theme throughout the scriptures. This is right for the people of God to pursue unity, to experience that. And David is saying, behold, how good, how right it is when the family of God dwells in unity. Unity is also right in the sense that it is fitting or becoming of God's people. The apple shouldn't fall from, far from the tree here. We are made in the image and likeness of a triune God who exists in community with himself and the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect unity, submitting to one another, glorifying one another. And we are made in that image and that likeness. And so it is fitting for us as his people to dwell in unity because we love and are united by a God of unity. So David says, behold, it is good. He also says, it is pleasant. Not only is it right, but it is also a delight. David wants us to notice and consider how much of a delight unity is. Uh, During summertime, when there, you know, a big gathering of family and friends and you've got the potluck table sitting there, I'm looking for the giant bowl of fruit salad, okay? Not only is it good for me, but I find it to be absolutely delicious and refreshing, right? Peace and unity among brothers and sisters in Christ isn't just good, it isn't just right, befitting of us, but it also is pleasing. It is a sweet and special blessing. And David expounds on that in verses 2 and 3. Let's read verse 2 together. He says, It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. What is going on here? What is this oil? Who is this bearded Aaron fellow? This verse is referring to the oil that was used to anoint Aaron, who is the first high priest of God's people. And when this happened, this was a huge defining moment in the history of Israel. Over a period of some 400 years, God's people grew from this large family of 12 brothers and one sister to a nation of approximately 2 million people while they were in captivity in Egypt. And God, under Moses' leadership, rescued them from that captivity. They crossed the Red Sea. He brought them into the wilderness. And then he consecrated them as his people and he consecrated their worship of him as their God. And in doing so, he gave them very specific instructions for how to do this. Down to the very uh, recipe for the oil that were to, was to be used in anointing Aaron. We read this in Exodus 30, chapter, or verses 22 through 33. I invite you to turn to that in your, in your Bibles. Exodus 30. Verses 22-33. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels worth, and of the sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250 shekels worth, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. 
and a hin of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burning offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person. And you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy. And it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds anything like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. That is the oil referenced in this psalm. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like that precious oil. Unity among the family of God is fragrant. It is sacred. It is an excessive gift. Let's consider each of those things one by one. Unity in the family of God is fragrant. It is enticing. This oil would have been very aromatic, very sweet smelling. In one description I read, it's, it suggested that as Moses was on the platform anointing Aaron and his sons, pouring this oil on their heads, that the smell of it would have wafted down to the people gathered around beholding the scene. It would have been a great smell, an aroma, a sweet fragrance that draws you in, that entices you to come nearer. And David is saying, in one sense, that this is what our unity as the body of believers, as a church, should be like. A sweet fragrance that draws people in. But it's also clear that this oil was very sacred, special, and holy. I mean, he said that numerous times in that passage. It was only to be used used for anointing these instruments and administrators of God's presence and atonement for the people. The things anointed with this oil were set apart for a single purpose, so much so that the things that they then touched became holy as well. So the oil was forbidden to be used for any common, ordinary purpose. If an Israelite were to try to create this for their own personal use, or if they would have anointed someone from outside the fellowship, they themselves would have been excommunicated from that fellowship. Unity among the family of God is is a sacred thing. It is special. It is holy. And there's a lot of things that we could kind of consider with that. I mean, I encourage you to do that on your own, to reflect on that. But one of the things I, I think that it means is that our that we are not to be united with those outside the family of God in the same way that we are to be united and experience unity or in a similar way that that we just won't be able to experience unity in the same way with those outside of the family of God. David is saying this, when brothers dwell together in unity, it is like this oil that is sacred, that is special, that is used for nothing else. It reminds me of the New Testament command uh, in 2 Corinthians 
to not be unequally yoked or unequally joined with unbelievers. Right? Paul says that, he says, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. The unity we experience or ought to experience with each other as followers of Christ should be special and sacred. And though the purpose isn't just to be exclusive, right? That's not the purpose of it. Because the laws that were given to Moses about this oil also included ways for people outside of the family of Israel to be welcomed into the fellowship. But it required that for them to do that, they had to choose to unite themselves with the family of God, to declare God to be their God and to be the people of God to be their people. Much like Esther, the Moabite, famously did. So the Jews were not to act as if uh, they were united with outsiders because they weren't. They weren't. When David likens brothers dwelling in unity with this sacred oil, he is saying that there isn't anything else quite like it. It is special, it is sacred, and needs to remain as such. So practically speaking, what might this look like? And, you know, I think you could think of a lot of ways, um, you know, that things that we could do or, or not do to protect that unity or, or not unite ourselves with, with people outside of the fellowship. But I think the most uh, important thing to realize and to say is that uh, you just won't be able to experience a deep, fulfilling unity with people who don't share your allegiance to Christ and your, uh, your allegiance to his kingdom. At some point, that is going to come into conflict. Um, as we talked about this, even on the way here, I was asking Ashley, like, okay, when you hear this, what do you think of? And she was like, yeah, you know, when we spend time with my family, most of whom aren't, aren't believers, like, I, we just don't experience a deep level of fellowship. Um, and that's not necessarily hard, fast, like, law or rule that you can't have deep fellowship with people. But at the end, your motives, your allegiances are not the same. And so you cannot be united at the core of who you are. It just won't happen. David doesn't just compare the goodness and pleasantness of unity with the holy oil itself, just sitting in a jug on a table perhaps, but he likens to unity to the oil as it gets poured on Aaron's head and runs down over his face and beard onto his clothes. What is the symbolism here? The most clear and plain point of this description, I believe, is to communicate that unity is an excessive blessing. I have witnessed people being anointed with oil a handful of times. Uh, Scott and Craig came to our home several years ago to pray over Ashley and anoint her with oil uh, to pray for the healing of her chronic migraines. Whenever I've seen this done in our culture, it's usually a little tiny jar, glass jar of oil, and you tip it out and you get like a drop or two, usually goes on the forehead. You might, you know, see a little trickle down, right? 
what we have here is a very different picture. We have oil being poured over him, and it's it's soaking up, not just being soaked up by his hair, not just being soaked up by his beard, but there's so much that it's just pouring down over his robes. And so, maybe that was more typical, I'm sure it was more typical then, um, and maybe I'm misreading this from my cultural perspective, but when I read this, it seems very excessive. There's an abundance here that David seems to be pointing out. It reminded me of when, um, when we were in the hospital, like the day after welcoming our, our oldest son into the world, and a friend offered to bring me some, some carry-out. And I think initially I like, declined. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm good, eating the hospital food, not a problem, you know, don't worry about it. But he persisted, probably knowing, you know, I really would enjoy carry out more and knowing me that I was probably just being polite. And he just wanted to bless me, you know, so he persisted. I ordered a sandwich. And he's like, well, what else do you want? I'm like, no, the sandwich is fine. I've got water here. You know, we're good. You know, he let it go. Or so I thought, right? So he, he arrives with the food. It's not just the sandwich I ordered, but it's like the giant version of the sandwich, There's a huge cookie in the bag. There's two bags of chips and not one, but two bottles of root beer. It was so excessive. (laughs) Unnecessary, right? It didn't really cost him that much more, maybe like an extra $8. Um, But it was, it was unnecessary. It was excessive. And I, I was so blessed by it. I loved it. It was a sweet gift from him. Right? And that's, I think, what David is pointing out. When brothers, and the family of God dwell in unity. It is like this oil that is pouring down. It is an excessive blessing that is more than what is deserved, um, that is more than what maybe you even feel like you need. And we should be thankful for it when we are being soaked and anointed by it. When we get to experience unity in our fellowship as believers, um, we should yeah, receive it as an excessive blessing. It should be um, something that fills us with thankfulness towards God. And I wonder if David's words here are ringing true for you. Like, if, Have you experienced this kind of beautiful, fragrant, excessive blessing in your unity with God's people? I want you to call that to mind. The psalm, this psalm of praise and thankfulness is coming from an overflow of David's enjoyment of that kind of fellowship. The people of God sang these words as they walked together to the temple, recalling ah, the goodness of the fellowship that we have in this moment. They didn't always have that. Certainly not. And perhaps maybe most, most frequently they didn't as a people. Ah, but when we do, isn't it so great and sweet? So I encourage you to do the same, to take time reflecting on how you have experienced this blessing in your life. So far we've seen that unity in the family of God is both good and pleasing. It is right. It is a delight. Like holy anointing oil running down Aaron's beard, it is fragrant and sacred, an excessive blessing. In verse 3, David continues with a second word picture, that of life-giving dew. Let's gaze at that for a few minutes. In verse 3 he says, It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The dew of Hermon 
refers to Mount Hermon, which is the tallest mountain range in Israel. I would have thought that that would have been Mount Zion. Mount Zion rises to like 2,500 feet. And it's like in the center of, of Israel. Mount Hermon is at the very northern edge of, of the old border. Now it, it lies in like between Syria and Lebanon outside of Israel's border. But it rises to a majestic 9,000 feet. So three to four times higher than Mount Zion. And it was clearly known for its dew. And even today, it is an extremely important geological feature in the area, which, like many other things in that region, is highly fought over. The snow melt and the watershed coming on Mount Hermon flows through cracks in the rocks and forms springs and streams in its lower elevations, which form rivers and eventually the Jordan River. And in the middle of an otherwise arid region, the lower slopes and peaks of Mount Hermon are rich, fertile, full of vegetation, and they became, become one of the main feeding grounds for livestock as well. So the dew of Hermon most likely represents a source of life, of abundance and fruitfulness. Again, does not our, our own experience with unity confirm this? When the people of God dwell in unity and live together with shared purpose, shared affection for God and one another as his people, is it not a source of great fruitfulness in our lives? Does it not sustain us and dry seasons. Again, King David knew this full well. He experienced both the, the blessing of unity and the sorrow and, um, and just brokenness of Israel when it was disunited. You know, he reigned over Israel in its prime. The nation was united, the borders were safe, the army was large, the treasuries were full, and then disunity spread. His own son sought to depose him and was successful in doing so. And many of the Psalms include David's laments and pleas for help and vindication, such as the one we looked at last week. But here in Psalm 133, David rightly rejoices in how good and pleasant it is when brothers, the people of God, dwell in unity with one another. It is life-giving, sustaining, and abundant like the dew of Hermon in a desert region. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when we dwell in unity. It is like the dew of Hermon falling down on the mountains of Zion. And David ends the psalm by saying, For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. That there being the mountains of Zion that have received the blessing of the dew from on high, that have nourished the land, that have brought um, vitality and life. It is from there, then, that the Lord commands his blessing to go forth. Life forevermore. And I believe what this is saying is that not only is unity a blessing from above that descends on us, like poured oil or falling dew, but is also the launching place of God's gift of eternal life into the world. The goodness and pleasantness of the family of God dwelling in unity is compared, again, to the mountains of Zion, from where God's blessing of eternal life goes forth. When the family of God is living in unity, it is not just a blessing for us, but for the entire world. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through 16 that says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to a, fra- 
To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And he says, who is sufficient for these things? The church, the family of God, is meant to be a fragrant aroma to the world. Even when the church is united, many in the world will still be repulsed by us. But how much more so when we are divided amongst ourselves, when we wrong and abuse one another? How sincere, sincere were our demonstrations of Christ's love be to those outside the fellowship when we are no longer able to be charitable with one another. So Paul asks a great question here though. Who is sufficient for these things? If we are to be the aroma of Christ, wow, that's, that sounds difficult. That sounds above what we're able to do. But it is because of Christ. He makes us sufficient. He enables our unity. He is the source of what we need to achieve and maintain this kind of unity. In Ephesians 2.14, Paul says that he, Christ himself, is our peace. And through the atonement, which he made through his own body, has torn down the dividing wall of hostility and made us, his people, one. Christ is the source of this anointing oil of unity on our heads. Christ is the source of the dew of unity that comes from the heights down to the city where his people dwell. We can experience unity in a church like this. We won't always, but it is certainly possible. Christ has purchased it with his own body. He has accomplished what the law was never able to do. It was never able to make us righteous. But not only has he purchased our justification and made us right with God, he has also purchased our sanctification, which will make us perfect like him, which will complete us being made in his image of a triune, united God. While we are experiencing that miracle of sanctification, Christ is enabling us to love unity, to want it, to desire it. He's enabling us to love one another more than serving our own sinful desires. He's freeing us from having to punish ourselves when we don't live up to that. Or from punishing each other when we sin against one another. And instead, he's made it possible for us to freely offer the gift of forgiveness that is the bed of unity. So David, in this psalm, he's reflecting on how good and pleasant unity is. When we dwell in it and experience the, the rightness of it, the delightfulness of it, may we, like David, also praise and thank God for this gift. When we fail to dwell in unity, let us turn to Jesus, though, who pays for our redemption and empowers our regeneration. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of unity. Unity that we have experienced so much just as a church here and in our other relationships with other believers. It is truly a treasure from you that we don't deserve, but you have poured it on us and you are still willing to keep pouring excessively this blessing on your people. We ask and plead for you to anoint us even today with that. Lord, today we are a church of people from all different other churches that have come together, that have moved from different states and parts of the country, Lord. Many of us feel disconnected in a way in this fellowship. We ask that in the coming months, this next year, 
that you will help us to experience a unity as a church that is sacred and holy, that is special, something that we don't experience anywhere else. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit and enable us to love each other as we, as we should. And Lord, we pray that from the unity that we experience here, a fragrant smell and aroma will go forth into this community, into our workplaces, into our neighborhoods, and people will be enticed by it, that they too will choose to come and say, what's going on there? And that they would choose to unite themselves, declare themselves to be your people, and to call this people your people as well. We need your help in this, Lord, but we know that you desire to help us and that you've made it possible. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.